You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Just your audible notification that you are now being recorded. So uh, anything that you do with your camera on will be documented at Central Avenue Church for at least the next four weeks until it gets uh, deleted by Zoom automatically. Um, But a lot can happen in four weeks. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all again. I promise that uh, you will not have to see this mustache next Sunday, but uh, Max is upset about that. It's, uh, it's been an interesting uh, experience here, and I feel like I haven't been able to get uh, take advantage of it because uh, it's covered up every time I go out anywhere. So I'll have to convince Ashley that, uh, or just do it again like I did this time. Um, it has not boded well, uh, obviously, but uh, I think it's pretty great. Nice. Thanks, Abe. I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Guys, I am so thankful again that you're here and uh, especially on this uh, long holiday weekend, it's good to see your faces. And um, I, uh, I was thinking um, that as we are um, in the middle of, gosh, just more gun violence. It was already a focus um, I wanted us to share and focus on um, this week uh, after the events in San Jose on Thursday where um, 10 people were killed. And then last night um, uh, there was a shooting in Miami um, where two people were killed and 20 people um, injured and Hopefully those numbers stay there, but I'm sure we'll see updates in the news. Um, And I know it's something that we talk about pretty often here, but it's also something that is just a constant plague um, on on, on our culture um, and something that we talk about, we, we try to envision something different and move towards change, but it seems like we're just in this constant pattern and refrain of gun violence. Um, And so I wanted to take some time this morning um, as we open in prayer, as we share in liturgy together, um, because I genuinely believe that when we come together, um, when we pray together, when we are moved to action by our prayers and by our grief that we do have the possibility to make great changes in our world. Um, And something like the, um, overcoming this plague of violence is something that I know, even though there is different political opinions opinions about, is something that we can all come together that regardless of where anybody stands, regardless of where people in our communities and families stand, that 
minimizing the violence is a goal we need to be moving toward. Um, and so in light of that, I'd love for us to join together in prayer this morning. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, God, we come this morning as people broken, healing, in recovery, seeking something new. God, we come from so many different places. We come from so many different experiences. But here in this place, we're drawn together by the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus, somebody who stood in the midst of violence and oppression and knew that there was a different way that challenged us to embrace a new way of being in the world, who challenged power and authority in a way that lifted up the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. And God, as we are part of now a great empire, we pray for your humility. We pray for hearts that are open to conviction, minds that are open to change. We pray for a spirit that is willing to sacrifice our own self-interests on behalf of others. So in the midst of a year in the middle of a global pandemic, one that's easing here but is raging other places in the world, we pray for healing, for shared resources, for a global mindset and spirit. In the middle of tremendous violence and gun violence here in the United States, but also throughout the world, we pray for changed minds. We pray for healing of abuses that lead toward violence. We pray for changed convictions. Teach us and move each one of us in ways that can move us towards peace and wholeness and healing, we pray. Amen. So this morning, I wanted to share in a um, lament that sadly this morning I had to change the numbers that are referenced here in light of um, the most recent shooting that took place in Miami. Um, but this is a responsive lament. And so we have been doing responsive liturgies here at Central in um, a way of us connecting and being community together. Because even though we're gathering from our homes um, all over the country here, um, we come together in one place, one spirit. And um, this is one of those ways that we get to connect together. 
Um, and we get to lift our voices together for um, a shared purpose. And so I'll read the parts that are not in bold. Um, we'll pray together the parts that are in bold. And um, as we do this, I wanted to point out that um, this liturgy specifically um, uses kingdom instead of kingdom. And we've talked about that a few other times, but especially in light of conversations around violence and power, um, it's an important shift to make. One that was started 20 years ago inside of the feminist movement um, and recognizes rather than that kind of um, kingdomly uh, authority um, that it's a kind of call towards the kinship that we all have um, as a people of God. And um, I love that. And it's still a word that is hard for me to replace, even though it's so similar, but I'm being intentional about it because the shift is so important. Thank you um, for sharing that, uh, Herman. I appreciate that. Um, and yeah, one of the things that I, um, I know some people as we've talked about that. Oh, uh, Aaron, can you turn on sharing? It looks like I am, I can do that too actually here. Interesting. Well, technological glitches. This is probably on my end. I just went under uh, share screen and selected multiple participants can share simultaneously. Previously, it yep. just said one participant can share. So I selected multiple. No, that's great. That's my see. end. My software all updated this week and my system preferences need to change. Um, well, We're going to do something different because mm -hmm. that is uh, going to take longer, I think, than I want to uh, upgrade that. What we'll do here, um, let me give one more try here because I think I might need to get out. Hey, there we go, we got it. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with me. Technology is great. Um, the, the last thing that I wanted to say as we, um, as we come together in prayer here is uh, specifically about kingdom and kingdom um, is that when Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, it was directly in opposition to the kingdom and power. And so even in the way Jesus uses the word kingdom, there is this subversiveness to um, empire and power and authority. And so I think it's perfectly appropriate for us to um, replace this word as we um, come against now the more modern, I think, foes of um, white supremacy uh, and our, our modern um, empire building that we've done. Um, yeah, so 
Uh, anyways, I wanted to point that out because you guys all get to say that first before I do. <laughs> but uh, let's join together in this prayer and lament. God, how many times was, must we cry out, how long? How many times will the cycles repeat themselves? Headline after headline, the news of lives lost to gun violence repeats itself. Heartbreak, reaction, effort, no change. Heartbreak, reaction, effort, no change. Heartbreak, reaction, effort, no change. Hear our cries, God. Open our ears to our lament. Weep with us when we weep. Listen, we are calling you. In the person of Jesus, you walked a world where the powerful were not held accountable, the poor were made vulnerable, and violence was used as a tool of fear and control. Though there were no guns, the same spirits of destruction and fear hovered over life. You know in your bones the grief that we bear. 33,080 incidents of gun violence have occurred so far in 2021 in the United States. And for the 17,880 people who lost their lives, our hearts, our are, hearts broken. are broken. For the 416 children who have been killed or injured, we confess we have not done enough. For the 1718s who have been killed or injured, bring your justice, O oh God. For the 237 cases of mass shootings that have involved somewhere between three and 22 individuals, there are no words for the depths of our despair. God, we wonder what it will take for meaningful change to occur. Wherever there is inaction, put your people into motion. Do not let the lives that have been taken be dishonored. Bring forth justice from their graves, O God. We grieve, we ache, we long for change because we believe it should not be this way. We have a sense of something better. Thy kingdom come, a world without toxic masculinity. Thy kingdom come, a world without white supremacy. Thy kingdom come, a world that does not take refuge in violence. Thy kingdom come, a world where access to guns is regulated. Thy kingdom come, a world where corporations do not profit while blood is spilt. Thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. Your will be done. O oh God of justice and compassion, receive our cries, not of hopelessness or of resignation, but of truth. In all of its ache of sharing in grief and anger and hard realities, the truth keeps us awake to what is so. <laughs> the truth keeps us awake to what is so that we can work for what could be. Help us make it so. Amen.
Thanks, Bob. Um, if you haven't had a chance um, to grab something for communion, please do so now. We'll give you just a minute. Um, we take it every week, as most of you know, and we use the elements that are at hand. Um, in, in, in the taking together, we consecrate them um, as the body. Um, as Aaron mentioned last week, and um, uh, many of you probably saw on Facebook, we are talking about um, both James Cohn and Gustavo Gutierrez um, this morning, uh, uh, leaders of the liberation theology movement. So um, I thought it would be good to read a little excerpt from one of Gutierrez's um, books on Eucharist itself. Um, and how the interplay between liberation and Eucharist and how the act of communion is in itself a remembrance um, and a promotion of liberation um, that we are called to. Um, so I'm going to read that and then we're going to take communion together. I've changed some of the language um, but that was gender exclusionary. Um, and thanks, Bob, for that note um, about Kingdom earlier too. We're, we're, we are working on it um, and... Uh, we're getting there. So this is from Gutierrez's A Theology of Liberation, History, Politics, and Salvation. Hear these words as we take communion together. In the Eucharist, we celebrate the cross and the resurrection of Christ, this Passover from death to life and our passing from sin to grace. In the gospel, the Last Supper is presented against that background of Jewish Passover which celebrated the liberation from Egypt and the Sinai co covenant. The Christian Passover takes on and reveals the full meaning of the Jewish Passover. Liberation from sin is at the very root of political liberation. The former reveals what is really involved in the latter. But on the other hand, communion with God and others presupposes the abolition of all injustice and exploitation. This is expressed by the very fact that the Eucharist was instituted during a meal. For the Jews, a meal in common was a sign of kinship. It united the diners in a kind of sacred pact. Moreover, the bread and the wine are signs of kinship, which at the same time suggest the gift of creation. The objects used in the Eucharist themselves recall that kinship is rooted in God's will to give the goods of this earth to all people so that they may build a more human world. The Gospel of John, which does not contain the story of the Eucharist institution, reinforces this idea, for it substitutes the episode of the washing of the feet, a gesture of service, love, and kinship. The substitution is significant. John seems to see in this episode the profound meaning of the Eucharist celebration, the institution of which he does not relate. Thus, the Eucharist appears inseparably united to creation and to the building up of a real human kinship. The reference to community, writes Tillard, does not therefore represent a simple consequence, an accidental dimension, a second level of a right that is in the first place and above all individual, as the simple act of eating is. From the beginning, it is seen in the human context of the meal. It, as it is and was conceived in Israel. The Eucharist, the Eucharist rite is in its essential elements, communitarian and oriented towards the constitution of human kinship. <sighs> went, to, went to seminary this morning and I'm sure we'll do that a little bit more. 
um, but I hope you hear the themes and the understanding and the deep theology tied in the symbolism of the Eucharist and the communion meal that we take together as one um, with no head or foot of the table, um, but as those taking and eating bread and wine together. So it is with that that I invite you with whatever it is you have today to take the bread for me, a Girl Scout cookie, uh, and the cup for me today, a coffee, um, and take them at your own pace as we celebrate our kinship uh, and communion as one. Amen. I think May is going to share some announcements with us this morning. Good morning, everyone. Just a couple of things this week. We have the gathering at seven on this Zoom link on uh, Wednesday night. And the other thing is we have a survey that was sent out a couple of weeks ago about reopening the church. Um, Aaron's going to send another email this week, so be on the lookout for that, and please fill out the survey because it is really, really important to us um, to know your opinion as we make this decision. Thank you so much. Thanks, May. And if for some reason you didn't get the email, uh, it's possible that I do not have an updated email for you. Please, um, you can put that in the chat, or um, you can text me or send me an email. Um, that would be great. And I'll make sure that you get a copy of the survey. So prayer requests, um, words of Thanksgiving. Now is the time that we share our joys and concerns with each other. Does anybody have anything they want to bring up and pray about? Hey, Aaron. Um, so I think a few months back, I said that um, my daughter's best friend was leaving and moving to a different state. Well, she's moving in a week. So the mm -hmm. time is here. Um, it's sad. We are grief of losing, you know, a friend that's moving is, is really strange in a seven-year-old girl. So um, we're working through that. So if you could just pray for her. Um, and also pray for her friend, Finn, um, who is moving. It's just a hard time for him. Yeah. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray for dear Cameron's precious little heart and how this is a, such a difficult time for her. And, and we can see that um, and hear that in May's voice. We pray for Cameron and, and for um, just May and, and, and Kit as they walk through this time with her and help her um, cope and try to understand. And um, we just also pray for Finn as I'm sure that this is going to be a difficult time for her as, as well. And just um, lift up their hearts in Jesus name, amen. Thanks. Sure. Anybody else this morning? With that, Max, I'm gonna. Well, it looks like he's a little preoccupied with a kid. Oh, it's Theo. Hi, Theo. <laughs> Take your time, man. 
saying hi. <laughs> oh, hey. We just put on some new shoes that we're having some feelings about. I think they look super cool. Do you like them? Mm -hmm. Good. Do you want me to tighten them or anything? You're just showing me. Okay, give me just one second, please. Good? Yeah. All right. I love you. Most meetings ever since the beginning of this whole thing. Uh, you know, I, uh, David, I think you were mentioning earlier, my, uh, my other one uh, is, is one and a half now. And of course, Facebook is so great at saying like a year ago, this was what was happening. I'm just getting pictures now of her just passed out in my arms while I'm on like a Zoom meeting with church. But these this Zoom generation is gonna be it's gonna be fun. <clears throat> it's nice to be with them. Yes, sorry, thank you. Um, so for um, the meditation today, as mentioned, both um, Gutierrez but also James Cohn um, are are um, primary focal points for what we consider to be liberation theology. And um, I, I chose for this morning uh, a poem from Margaret Walker, um, the great um, African-American poet and writer, part of the Chicago Black Renaissance movement um, in the, in the mid-1900s. Um, and I will read um, this poem by her. Uh, it's called For My People. And as a reminder of the, the intersections coming together today, right? And the conversations that we often center on and racial justice um, in this country, um, but the anniversary of the Tulsa race uh, uh, massacre um, and Memorial Day, right? And the celebration of American patriotism and all of these overlaps that um, require us to pause and to look deeply and honestly at what we celebrate and what we remember and why and who uh, whose stories are elevated in the country that we live in and the world that we live in and what our role is as people of liberation and justice in elevating those stories. So with that, I invite you into this time of meditation. It's a rather long poem, so I'm just gonna read it once, but I'll link to it and I invite you to just Feel your feet on the ground um, and your body um, at rest as you hear these words and meditate on this message from Margaret Walker, For My People. For my people everywhere singing their slave songs repeatedly, their dirges and their ditties and their blues and jubilees, praying their prayers nightly to an unknown God bending their knees humbly to an unseen power. For my people lending their strength to the years, to the gone years and the now years and the maybe years, washing, washing, ironing, cooking, scrubbing, sewing, mending, hoeing, plowing, digging, planting, pruning, patching, dragging along, never gaining, never reaping, never knowing and never understanding. For my playmates in the clay and dust and sand of Alabama backyards, playing, baptizing, and preaching, and doctor, and jail, and soldier, and school, and mama, and cooking, and playhouse, and concert, and store, and hair, and Miss Chumbi and company. For the cramped, bewildered years we went to school to learn, to know the reasons why, 
and the answers to, and the people who, and the places where, and the days when, in memory of the bitter hours when we discovered we were black and poor and small and different and nobody cared and nobody wondered and nobody understood. For the boys and girls who grew in spite of these things, to be a man and woman, to laugh and dance and sing and play and drink their wine and religion and success, to marry their playmates and bear children and then die of consumption and anemia and lynching. For my people thronging 47th Street in Chicago and Lenox Avenue in New York and Rampart Street in New Orleans, lost, disinherited, dispossessed, and happy people, filling the cabarets and taverns and other people's pockets, and needing bread and shoes and milk and land and money and something, something all our own. For my people walking blindly, spreading joy, losing time, being lazy, sleeping when hungry, shouting when burdened, drinking when hopeless, tied and shackled and tangled among ourselves by the unseen creatures who tower over us omnisciently and laugh. For my people blundering and groping and floundering in the dark of churches and schools and clubs and societies, associations and councils and committees and conventions, distressed and disturbed and deceived and devoured by money-hungry, glory-craving leeches, preyed on by facile force of state and fad and novelty, by false prophet and holy believer. For my people standing, staring, trying to fashion a better way from confusion, from hypocrisy and misunderstanding, trying to fashion a world that will hold all the people, all the faces, all the Adams and Eves and their countless generations. Let a new earth rise. Let another world be born. Let a bloody peace be written in the sky. Let a second generation full of courage issue forth. Let a people loving freedom come to growth. Let a beauty full of healing and a strength of final clenching be the pulsing in our spirits and our blood. Let the martial songs be written. Let the dirges disappear. Let a race of men now rise and take control. May it be so. Amen. Thanks, Max. So today is part five in our luminary series where we're looking as, as Max and Bob said earlier at the writers um, and thinkers that have influenced us most. And today we're looking at the work of James Cone and Gustavo Gutierrez, who are considered the primary luminaries of what became known as liberation theology, which is a theological tradition and interpretive lens for the Bible that has had an enormous impact, enormous influence on every progressive Christian today, whether they know it or not, whether they've ever heard uh, the term liberation theology before, or ever heard the names James Cone or Gustavo Gutierrez before. I think in order to really understand what progressive Christianity or liberal Christianity is today, you have to understand that a lot of its roots, not all of them, but a lot of, a lot of the roots are in liberation theology. Other roots, I would say, are in the Enlightenment, modernity, aka the birth of the age of uh, science and reason, and the critique of religious superstition, 
which leads to what we call deconstruction, right? But a lot of what defines progressive Christianity or liberal Christianity today is also rooted in liberation theology, which I think also leads, uh, creates or leads us into deconstruction or contributes to it. I'm choosing to talk today about two people, James Cohn and Gustavo Gutierrez. Usually in this series, I'm talking about one every week, but today I'm talking about two because honestly, multiple people at the same time developed liberation theology in the 1960s. And really it's liberation theologies, plural, as there were, there was a, a Latin American liberation theology and an American black liberation theology and, and others that took place or took shape at the same time and have sense. In Latin America, South America, Central America, predominantly South America, liberation theology basically took place in or took shape in places like Colombia, Brazil, and Peru as these nations were going through incredible social upheaval during the 60s, like other parts of the world. Uh, in, these, in these nations, in these South American nations, like two thirds of the population lived in abject poverty and were deeply oppressed by wealthy landowners and corrupt governments that kept most of the population at or near starvation level in order to control them and exploit them. Enter Gustavo Gutierrez, a, a Peruvian Catholic priest. He was born in Lima in, I think it was 1928. He actually, he's still alive <laughs> and holds a professor chair at Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana. He, he became a Catholic priest in the 1950s and completed his studies in France. And it was there that he became engrossed in the philosophies and social theories of Freud and Marx. And it was actually Marx's writings, excuse me, in particular, that really shaped his theology. It was Marx's writings about class struggle and the material conditions that both create and sustain poverty that really interested Gustavo. And this is why uh, many evangelicals today are deeply, deeply resistant and critical of liberation theology. Uh, it's Marxist, they say, and they're not entirely wrong. Uh, you know, Gutierrez was uh, perhaps one of the most prominent proponents of liberation theology or, or creators of it, and he was deeply influenced by Marx. Anyway, after graduating, Gutierrez returned to Peru to work as a priest, but with, with the vision to change the material conditions of his country on behalf of the poor. He believed that for the gospel and the church to really mean anything, it had to do something to alleviate the material sufferings of the poor. What a, what a concept. It wasn't enough to just tell people, you know, tell the poor that uh, one day their sufferings are going to be over in this life and this world because, hey, you're, they're going to go to heaven and have eternal bliss and mansions on high. Was it, was it enough to tell them that? Um, Gutierrez believed that it wasn't, that wasn't really the gospel. Rather, he believed it was about liberation here and now in the economic and social condition of our lives. He believed that when Jesus preached about the kingdom of God, he was talking about the inbreaking and the inauguration of God's love, God's justice and liberation for the poor and oppressed here and now, not eternal bliss on high one day. So Gutierrez articulated a reading of scripture that emphasized Jesus's solidarity with the poor and oppressed 
in his teachings, life, death, and resurrection. This was the gospel and Christianity for Gutierrez. The, the central question of his work was and still is, how do we convey to the poor that God loves them? That's it. It's a pretty elegant and simple question, right? That, that animated Gutierrez, but it has huge implications. How do we convey to the poor that God loves them? Now, simultaneously, there were other Catholic priests in South America, and liberation theology in the 60s in South America was largely just a Catholic project. Um, but, but simultaneously, along with Gutierrez, there was other Catholic priests in South America who were embodying a much more radical <laughs> liberation theology. They held a lot of the same readings of scripture uh, like Gutierrez, but thought that a true embodiment of the gospel meant armed resistance. Catholic priests like um, Camila Torres in Colombia actually created militias and, and uh, waged guerrilla warfare against the Colombian army. Uh, he would only lead mass and receive the Eucharist with other armed uh, Catholic guerrilla warriors. I mean, that's, that, that was his understanding of the gospel. And actually the Academy Award-winning film, I'm sure some of you have seen it, many of you have seen it. If not, you need to see it. Uh, the Mission from 1986, the uh, film with uh, starring Robert De Niro, Liam Neeson, uh, Jeremy Irons. Um, it was basically about, it, it actually is a depiction of liberation theology and how some Jesuit priests took up the cause of the indigenous people of Paraguay. And I, I think uh, it was against the Spanish colonizers and, and including the church itself. You know, even though the film is set in the 18th century, according to the film's producers and, and the director, it was made to depict the contemporary struggle between the Vatican and radical priests in South America who practice liberation theology. So it's a great film, great depiction of what liberation theology is. But in, in order to truly understand Latin American liberation theology, uh, one must understand it as a reaction against colonialism and the theology of European colonizers or European Christians who believed that God had called them to seize the new world and, and to displace the native people, the native population while you know, Christianizing and civilizing them, right? This colonial way of thinking still exists today in Central and South America and sustains the systems of oppression and the gross inequities and the poverty that exists there among the indigenous population. Uh, and it's really, um, when, when you look at the, the hierarchy, the social hierarchy in these countries, it's usually a fair-skinned and, and basically those of European ancestry that really run the corporations and the government and basically subject and keep under boot, um, frank, frankly, those of darker skin and of, of indigenous ancestry. So liberation theology is very much a reaction to that inherited racism and oppression that still exists today in those nations. And, and these are some of the insights of Latin American liberation theology. And, and as I said earlier, it has a counterpart that developed simultaneously in the United States during the 1960s, during what we, what we call the civil rights movement here. James Cone perhaps being uh, its most recognizable founder. However, he would say, and he has said, um, that he got his liberation theology, black liberation theology, really from Malcolm and Martin Luther King Jr., who talked about a God of liberation from both a Christian and a Muslim perspective. And Cohn would say also he got his black liberation theology 
from the slave spirituals from a century before. Uh, these slave spirituals that embodied so much of these ideas of a God who de delivers, a God who stands in solidarity with the oppressed and the poor and the powerless and, and the enslaved. Um, uh, you know, the slave spirituals were about, you know, God who stands in solidarity with the poor and the powerless, the, the, the powerless ones of the world and shows preference for them. So really, James Cone saw himself as more the recipient of rather than the creator of what he labeled black liberation theology. Nevertheless, Cohn became its chief prophet and the one who formalized it really into books and into a social theory in, in the academy, you know, at, at the level of uh, the university level. He taught and held a professorship at Union Theological Seminary. In fact, I think he held Bonhoeffer's chair. Um, he, he held a professorship at Union Theological Seminary really for 40 years. Um, and in that way, he kind of became known as the founder of Black Liberation Theology, which again, shares many similarities with Latin American liberation theology, but is also quite distinct. The greatest difference perhaps being that Black Liberation Theology, Cohn says, and I'm quoting him now, Black Liberation Theology is the gospel of Jesus Christ in America today period, end quote. Latin American liberation theology is the gospel of Jesus Christ in Latin America, in Brazil, Peru, Colombia, etc. But black liberation theology was and still is an intrinsically American expression of the gospel. Now, this is really important to understand. Cohn said this because he was very much influenced by the early 20th century German theologian Paul Tillich. And Tillich taught that there was no such thing as a universal theology or a universal religion. Religion and theology are always social constructs and products of the cultures they rise out of and thereby address the cares and concerns, the problems and the hopes and desires of a particular people at a particular place and time in history. So the religion and the theology of the ancient Israelites that we find in the Old Testament is very much a religion created to meet the needs of that people then and should be read as such. Likewise, the religion and theology that we find in the New Testament was very much a religion and theology that was constructed to meet the needs of the diverse people in the early church, but also a very Jewish population. The same could be said for other religions that developed in other places and times in history. Now, James Cone capitalized on that Talikian idea on that insight from Tillich and asked himself as a young black man in the 1960s who had just completed seminary and a doctorate in philosophical theology, he asked himself, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ today in America? What is Christianity for us here and now? And the answer he believed was black liberation theology. And perhaps his, his best quote about all this is, is this one. He said, either God is identified with the oppressed to the point that their experience becomes God's experience or God is a God of racism. The blackness of God, the blackness of God means that God has made the oppressed condition his own condition. This is the essence of the biblical revelation. By electing Israelite slaves as the people of God and by becoming the oppressed one in Jesus Christ, the human race is made to understand that God is where human beings experience and experience humiliation and suffering. 
Liberation is not an afterthought, but the very essence of divine activity, end quote. That's what Cohn meant when he said that black liberation theology is the gospel of Jesus Christ in America today. The book of his that I like the most is his last book published actually posthumously. He, uh, Cohn actually died three years ago. The book is called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. The Cross and the Lynching Tree. In that book, he argues that the best way for us Americans to understand the cross of Christ is through the lens of the lynching tree. The cross was, in fact, a first century lynching. That's how we should understand it. A lot of people don't know that thousands upon thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. Jesus's crucifixion wasn't unique. Countless people had been crucified around the time of Christ. And the sentence of crucifixion was almost always just reserved for those guilty of sedition, guilty of challenging Roman authority and power, which Jesus did by teaching that he was inaugurating a new kingdom. And Jesus was also guilty of starting riots. <laughs> Remember the flipping over the, of the tables in the, uh, in the temple just before his arrest, right? Thus, Jesus's crucifixion was a profound act of solidarity with those who had been lynched and crucified for defying the Romans. And, and just like the lynching of a black man in the American South, the crucifying of Christ was done as a public spectacle. It was done to warn others not to get out of line and challenge the authorities or the status quo. In the same way, lynchings were done in the South, predominantly in the South, to, quote, uppity Blacks that forgot their place and thereby challenged white supremacy. Crucifixions were done to uppity peasants in the Roman Empire who forgot their place and challenged the empire. Therefore, the crucifixion should be understood as a profound act of God's solidarity with the so-called lynched ones of the world, those who suffer at the hands of the powerful and under their boot, those who are humiliated and made a public spectacle of in the name of law and order. Christians must always ask themselves, therefore, who are the crucified people in the world today? Who are the lynched ones by those in power in the world today? Because they are Christ in our midst. The lynched ones are always Christ in our midst. That's what black liberation theology teaches us. That was Cone's big insight, we, we should say. It's amazing to me that uh, more American Christians um, then and now, you know, American Christians even 100 years ago did not make that connection between the cross and the lynching tree. Um, I mean, scripture even says in places like Acts 10, they put him, meaning Jesus, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. I mean, that's the text. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. We've never made that connection between the cross and the lynching tree. I mean, I've never heard it before. Um, but you better believe that when black Christians in the South read that text a hundred years ago, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. You better believe that, you know, their mind was immediately drawn to the terrible image of the lynching tree. The fact that white Christians then and now don't make this connection, I think is evidence, and Cone thought it was evidence, uh, of just how much we've misunderstood the gospel and read it from a white and colonial and Eurocentric perspective. Or as Frederick Douglass put it in 1845, from a slaveholder religion perspective. Slaveholder religion is alive and well today in America. Even though slavery is dead, slaveholder religion is, is alive and well. And it's seen in 
the white evangelicalism that focuses more on personal piety and personal salvation than on social justice and liberation of the oppressed. Uh, so in this way, liberation theology seeks to liberate the oppressed and has always seeked to liberate the oppressed, not just from economic and political oppression, but from oppressive theologies too, from oppressive gods and oppressive readings of scripture that ignore basically the message of social justice in the text. Um, the otherworldly and pious reading of the Bible, the otherworldly and pious theology that we find in the white church that's all about right belief and you know going to heaven when you die, that theology is really a slaveholder religion that ignores uh, the social justice themes and ignores the plight of the oppressed. This means that in order to really understand liberation theology, Black liberation theology or Latin American liberation theology or others, one must understand that it doesn't really distinguish between religion and politics, between theology and politics. The gods and theology of one are really the gods and theology of the other. Anyone that doesn't think politics isn't religious or that religion isn't political doesn't really understand either or the historical way that they've, they've always shaped our, our world together. Okay, so that's basically, uh, that's a, a short, even though it took like 15 minutes, that, that was a short uh, exposition of James Cone and Gustavo Gutierrez and Black Liberation Theology and Latin American Liberation Theology. You can probably see how Cone and Gutierrez's work intersect. Um, and, and liberation theology is, is still branching out and creating new movements today, like queer theology and, and feminist theology and more. But I wanna open it up now for discussion, for questions. Um, I have some discussion questions uh, that can guide us, but I'm curious always to hear, um, you know, if you have any reactions or questions to anything I, I said, anybody? So I'm, I'm curious, how has liberation theology influenced your faith and uh, your understanding of Christianity? How has, um, maybe how has it changed your faith um, over time? Do anybody want to comment about that? How has it influenced you? David, you, you can just go ahead and, and Okay, I had no clue what the etiquette was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is no etiquette. So I grew up in a religious tradition that very much had what you talked about, where um, salvation was about something in the future, right? Like, and um, I grew up in a religion where you you didn't vote, you didn't do anything like that, because that, that meant you weren't loyal to the kingdom if you were trying to fix it yourself. And when I first when I first read James Cone in seminary, it was it was this sort of um, it was, it was sort of a smack upside the head as a white person of how, um, of course, if you believe in a God who chooses slaves and frees slaves, then of course you're involved. Of course you're active. Of course, it's, it's sort of, um, it's become like liberation theology is very important to me because it's, it's a reminder of my privilege and it sort of jolts me out of my complacency. And um, every time I read it and think that I get it and start complimenting myself on how well I get it, I read a new author who shows me, no, actually you don't get it. You don't get it at all. You're missing a part of it. So it's, it's, um, it's very, very special to me. 
it's it's and I and I will say I think Cross and the Lynching Tree is one of those books that every single white person should especially white Christians should read because it, it's brutal and it'll break your heart and you'll just never see anything the same way again and it's short I mean it's only yeah. like 120 pages something like that so it's, it's not, not like it's not it's, like, it's, not, yeah. it's very accessible yeah, it right yeah. it's not really academic yeah in fact it's not really academic at all it's, it's written really in a in, in non-academic language yeah yeah, good stuff. Thanks, David. Yeah, Max has got it right there. Yeah, I've got the Kindle version. I was showing it's not, I mean, it is, it's a pr easy read, not in terms of content. <laughs> right, it's, it's heavy. Read, as David said, but I mean, it's it's a very accessible, not too long of a book that yeah. really together an academic approach and a very practical. Um, I was just going to say real quick, especially since we started this series, um, not started, but one of the early ones of this series touched on Rob Bell, which many of us are familiar with. I was just going to tie in. I looked up on my shelf too. the book. Jesus wants to save Christians uh, was one of my very first experiences with like liberation theology, though. I didn't know the term at the, at the time, but one of my main reactions, Aaron, in, in the question you posed and, and to being introduced to think about it that way, the biggest shift in my mind. And I know for a lot of people, is recognizing that many of us were raised to read the Bible and to understand the story of Christianity and Judaism as us being the persecuted small group of Christians, small group of Jews. And when in reality, for many of us um, living in America, we are the Roman Empire, right? And and that that piece or the Babylonian Empire, whatever, what all the empires of the you know um of the bible we are much closer to to those folks than we are to the persecuted group from which our very faith arose and so i think that's a major shift that really helps um frame liberation theology because suddenly right you start to realize no there needs our faith is intrinsically about liberating from empire um, whether that's, you know, the, the uh, you know, empires of white supremacy and, you know, capitalism and sexism and patriarchy, there's so many things that that looks like um, now, um, but it's just a major shift. And it was just sort of like a, whoa, kind of turn upside down. So that's yeah, totally my early journey getting into this. And yeah, long before I read Cone, um, but it's a, uh, it's a necessary step. Well, and it's, it's, I think it's a conversion to true Christianity, <laughs> to be honest, I'll put it that way. I, I really think that strongly about it. Um, in a way, I, I didn't, I, I feel like I only became a Christian maybe 10, 10 years ago when I first started hearing this stuff. I mean, that's my feeling on it. But uh, did somebody else want to comment? I see Jason's, Jason's comment in the chat column. I feel a little ashamed of myself for not seeing the parallels between the lynching tree and the Christian cross. Yeah, me too. I, I never saw that until I read Cone. I mean, but it's startling. I mean, it's really there. So for those of you who have gone through deconstruction, and you never really exit, <laughs> right? It's not like, oh, I'm done with this now. I've deconstructed, you know, it's kind of ongoing. But for those of you who are going through deconstruction, 
I'm, I'm curious, you know, what role liberation theology, Max, thank you for sharing your story a little bit. I'm, I'm curious what role liberation theology has played or continues to play in your deconstruction. Anybody want to talk about that? I'll go. Um, yeah. Kind of piggybacking on what Max said, it helped me to move from a self-centered view of, Christ of American Christianity into asking, well, if Jesus is for the oppressed, who are the oppressed in our current society? And that shifts my thinking from, well, it helps me realize that the American foundation of theology is not, was not about who, asking that question right. and is not focused on who the oppressed are. And so that's the first major shift um, that kind of what Max mentioned is the big eye-opening moment. It's like, oh, Jesus was for the oppressed. Who are the oppressed in society? It's not the people who founded American Christianity as we know it. And then from there, it, it just opens your mind into, you know, well, who else, who is the oppressed? And then when you ask that question, trying to figure out, well, what can Christianity mean for them? Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a journey. <laughs> like I'm, we're still asking that question, you know, as things continue to happen in our society. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Rodney. Yeah. I mean, does anybody else feel, I feel like, especially for us, um, former evangelicals, does anybody else feel like realizing, um, just how, how politically screwed up, <laughs> how oppressive the white church, white evangelicalism is specifically how it denies social justice, how it basically denies that racism is an issue, how it basically denies that homophobia is an issue, right? Did anybody feel like realizing that the scriptures are adamantly against so much of what we were taught in the church politically, that that was, that was a real big part of your conversion or your deconstruction? For me, it certainly was. It wasn't just theological. It was really a political as well. And in liberation theology and the, and the ideas coming, and I didn't know it was liberation theology, as Max said, when I first encountered these ideas, that, that the gospel is really about liberation of the oppressed, specifically in the material conditions of our world. That was like, and then, re, and then realizing that that message was not just for, you know, people that have been racially oppressed, but people that have been oppressed because of their gender, people that have been oppressed because of their sexuality. That was a huge breakthrough for me. You know, reading the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well from a liberation theology perspective was like, oh, my God, how come this was never taught to me? Um, that was a big part of my deconstruction. I'm just curious if others want to reflect on that, too, or if that was true for you. I also wanted to ask if anybody wants to um, discuss how, how does liberation theology intersect with critical race theory? I think it does maybe. And uh, anybody wanna talk about that? Well, I, I'll say I was thinking when you were talking about, about this like um, evangelical or conservative churches that, that um, 
I think it's significant that churches, white, white evangelical churches are leading this charge to ban the discussion of racism in school. Like whenever whenever white people tell you, you shouldn't talk about racism, like that should really be like a cue that we've entered a whole new, like, um, well, actually not a new thing. It's an old American thing, but that's a big deal. I mean, um, and and it's happening at such a rapid clip as to be profoundly alarming. But I, I think once you start reading liberation stuff, you start realizing how that's an old pattern. Yes. It's white clergy people deciding, well, that's not the gospel, right? That things are when men say that feminism is anti-gospel or straight people say, well, queer people, that's not the gospel, of course, because that's preserving the power structure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I should not be surprised we've reached a point in American history where it's controversial to acknowledge racism exists, but that's sort of where we've always been. Yeah. Yeah. For, for those of you not familiar, critical race theory is a secular social theory about how race and racism play a role in the criminal justice system, government, universities, corporate America, and other institutions. Um, liberation theology would, would definitely agree with many of the tenets of critical race theory and would point out how the church, as one of the most powerful institutions in the world, you know, like the criminal justice system, governments and, and universities, how the church also plays a role in sustaining systemic racism. So I think that's how, el- how liberation theology and critical race theory intersect and overlap. Um, and, and so I just wanted to give that background for those who might not have um, been familiar with critical race theory. And, and I think for that reason, liberation theology is, is often as harshly as David, I think just mentioned, is often as harshly criticized and rejected by evangelicals today as, as critical race theory, um, because both are, are kind of rooted in Marxist critiques of, of religion and class. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think they're, it's interesting how those are overlapped. Anybody else wanna comment? I'll share. Mm-hmm. Um, Please. I definitely like, after going through like this process of deconstruction, just realizing just how much the white evangelical church perpetuates the negative status quo. And I remember in grad school doing reading on liberation theology, and I'm still kind of going like, in my mind, there's a a spectrum specifically on like the more militant or I don't know, like violent aspects um, of of liberation theology. Cause on one hand, like I wanna burn these systems down and have zero tolerance and be very radical about them. And then on the other hand, in like the more militant side, I guess, of liberation theology, people are like, like I know like violence shouldn't beget violence. So I'm wondering like your thoughts or anyone kind of chiming in. Cause I'm like, I don't think Jesus would do certain things like this violent or like hurting people. But then again, we see that in Latin American liberation theology and also black liberation theology. And like, so maybe it's okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm going great through question. this construction. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. That's a great question. Anybody want to speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I'm have the same questions you do, Anna. Is it Anna or Anna? I always forget. 
<laughs> is Anna. Anna. Yeah, I think I, I have that same struggle. And, um, you know, I, <laughs> you know, every, every circumstance and every event of political violence, uh, specifically coming out of oppressed communities, is perhaps different and needs to be judged separately and not, I don't think we need a blanket statement like political violence or, um, you know, uh, violent reactions from oppressed communities are always bad. Well, no, I don't think that at all, actually. But um, I absolutely do share some of your concerns about violence begetting violence um, and whether or not, you know, and, and, and I think we are taught from Christ and the Christian tradition that, um, you know, in a, in a way we're not to return evil for evil, right? And that we are to think about what it means to break cycles of violence. But I think that it's difficult. And, and again, those, the circumstances involved in how political violence happens and what it looks like and how we define violence is always very nuanced. I think often a lot of people define violence as being like, um, you know, like uh, African-Americans, you know, smashing the windows of a, of a bank. That scene is violent. But the bank practices of discriminatory loan practices and predatory loan, that's not seen as violent, right? And that is crazy, right? Um, yeah, David, <laughs> so, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we need to have a very nuanced understanding of, of violence too, I, you know, in a way that actually sees where the violence is really coming from and it's coming from places often of white supremacy and power and the ruling class and the church and reactions to that from oppressed communities are both understandable and I think often justifiable. Um, so, and you know, when, when you leave people with no other recourse, um, but to smash, you know, buildings and vehicles and things like that, you know, I, I think that we can understand that, but I do share some of your concerns. And, but I also feel like that as, as especially as a white straight man, Christian, maybe it's not my place to get into defining the boundaries and, and I shouldn't be the one to define those things. I think um, oppressed communities are quite capable of doing that themselves and need to do that themselves. Does that make sense? I shouldn't be the one to, to center my voice in that conversation. That's how I see it. Yeah, thank you, makes, makes sense. It's not easy. I'm, those aren't easy answers. Those aren't simple, uh, simple answers, right? It doesn't clean it up, really, but it does maybe help a little bit. I, I don't know. Uh, can I uh, just comment on the... Yeah, JP, please. Um, I think that there's a difference between the violence of an individual and then the violence of a group or an organization. Um, and I don't... I think obviously for an individual, it's on that individual to judge themselves. Um, and it's hard to, for someone else to judge the, the circumstances of one individual. But I think if you start talking about organizations, so for example, a revolution, um, one way that I would look at it is, um, are the actors making a sacrifice as opposed to indulging themselves? Hmm. I think there's a difference when you see, for example, any in any situation, let's say a soldier volunteers to serve, um, they probably would rather be doing something else or versus somebody who wants to break stuff anyway and then gets to go and, you know, uh, there, there's, there's kind of a difference there. And I think whenever you have a movement 
that's organized, I think that the leadership has to, because the leadership may not be the ones committing the acts, um, the leadership has to ask itself this question of moral justification. Like if you ask someone to do something that in most contexts is wrong, what is the moral justification? For instance, if someone is threatening the life of a member of your family, right? Um, the action that you might take is criminal in any other context. And so this is where, when you look at um, places like say Latin America or in Africa or whatever, where you see revolutionary movements, um, the individuals who are in combat with other individuals are involved in something that they'll obviously never forget that will traumatize them. And then the reason is, well, why? And I think that that's where, if it's an organization at the leadership level, there has to be an understanding that something is being sacrificed. It's truly devastating for the group involved in order to liberate whatever, your, your country or so on and so forth. And I don't think there's a clean answer to that, but I do think like there's a distinction there that, that needs to be made. Yeah, thank you for that. Other thoughts, reflections today? Good stuff, everybody. I think we had a great conversation. And um, yeah, that is the end of that. And uh, next week, um, I'm thinking we might conclude the series next week. Uh, we're looking at um, some John Caputo. Um, he's been a big influence on me. Uh, he's spoken at Central before. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, um, let me know if you have any other um, suggestions about who you'd like to talk about in the series. But uh, please complete the survey and uh, we'll see you again real soon. Thanks for being here, everybody. If you want to hang out and chat, please do so. Otherwise, uh, go in peace, friends. Bye. Have a good one. Bye, Randy. Yeah, David, white evangelical pastors talking about liberation theology do sound like Pharaoh saying, who is this slave God that thinks I have to let you go? <laughs> this was really lovely. Thank you. This is a good reminder of stuff that I knew and that it's always good to think about again. And then a reminder how much I don't know, right? Like I, mm -hmm. I sort of was like, oh yeah, I remember reading that cone book. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, I don't know that at all. I, I'm realizing that I really haven't read Gutierrez much at all. Yeah, and that that's a huge hole in my knowledge is that I don't really know that. So I'm like, oh, there's a good thing for me to do. I need to um, know more about the Latin American 
Yeah, I, 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 yeah, me too, man. I'm right there with you as well. I feel like I'm way more, way, way more familiar with Black liberation theology, um, obviously because it's very American, you know, um, through reading Cohn and James Baldwin even, uh, and, you know, reading King, Dr. King, like, so, I mean, I feel like, yeah, we're, we're more familiar, and it makes sense that we're more familiar with that, that version of it. And I'm grateful for that conversation that was on on the the violence and where does that connect to Jesus. That was yeah. that was good because and I, I I'm and thank you for not trying to answer it but just sort of letting the conversation go because that's awkward. But I think that's where that needed to be. Well, um, I I embrace the awkwardness. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for being here and participating. Thank you all. It was great to visit again. I, I, I'll just see it, David. I'll pop I'll pop in and out so long as I can zoom my way in <laughs> yeah well we'll keep doing zoom i think even when we resume services the plan is to keep doing zoom we we did facebook live prior but i think we'll stick with zoom to allow it to get more interaction well good luck with that i mean this in some ways the next step of this pandemic is even harder than what we've been through is like reopening is proving to be much more complicated than shutting down so blessings to y'all as you figure that out you too you too and, and blessings to you also. on your move on your move to pennsylvania Thank you. <laughs> Take care, let's everybody. Talk, Thank you. Let's talk soon. All right. See you later. Bye. <laughs> see y'all. See you guys. Later. Bye. Bye, mustache. See you, man. <laughs>